Every leader has a strategy. Executing on that strategy is the challenge. If you want to learn how to effectively achieve what you've set out to accomplish, then this show is for you. Gain keen insights and listen in as leaders share their stories and challenges. Soar Vision Group and the Baldridge Foundation welcome you to Leader Dialogue Radio. And hello, everyone, and welcome to Leader Dialogue, brought to you by Soar Vision Group and the Baldridge Foundation. We are broadcasting live from the Subaru of Gwinnett Studio inside the beautiful Sinesta Gwinnett Place Atlanta Hotel. And I'm Mike Salmond with Business Radio X, filling in this week for the vacationing Duffy Dixon. We think Duffy's in Florida, enjoying her time there. No, she's in California, actually. Ah. So she's getting back at you, Ben, for being gone to Hawaii yes. weeks ago. Well, I'm that glad means, she can get away. That's great. That means I'm next. <laughs> there that out there. That's yeah. something to look forward to to Jennifer and I'm sure Duffy's listening right now as we speak but we want to thank everybody out there for joining us and let me introduce you to some of the voices you just heard our two exceptional leaders with SOAR Vision Group. Ben Sawyer is the Chief Executive Officer with over 30 years of executive leadership experience. He has significant guided strategy deployment experience and he's worked with many clients to achieve dramatic sustainable operational performance and greatly improve outcomes. Jennifer Strahan is the Chief Operating Officer with SOAR Vision group. She has partnered with more than 100 health systems and businesses across the U.S., helping them transform their strategic and administrative operations. Our very special guest today is John McDaniel. He's the Senior Vice President of Innovation and Technology for the HCI Group. John has more than 35 years of experience as a healthcare CIO, consulting services executive, and as an executive with large healthcare solution companies. You can read John's full bio on the Business Radio X website, which is listed just below this podcast. John, welcome to Leader Dialogue. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. Well, before I turn you over to Ben and Jennifer, give us a broad overview of the HCI Group and what your organization does. Sure. The HCI Group is an advisory services organization that really is focusing on delivering services to enable healthcare to transform from the model that we operate in today to more consumer-driven model, data-driven model, so that we del- deliver a much higher quality of service to the customers that the demand now is focusing on that and ensuring that we have the right data at the right time to deliver the right service in the most efficient and effective manner. So, John, welcome. Thank you. And um, one of the themes that the listeners have been hearing us talk about is performance excellence in the age of consumerism, which you just elucidated a little bit there. So uh, for the listeners, you can go on our Leader Dialogue website Go to the home page. You'll be able to see the organizational hierarchy of needs. And what John was just hitting on a couple is organizational effectiveness and tapping into demand. So let's dig a little deeper into both what HCI is doing in that space as well as what you uniquely are doing as a leader there. And I'll probably combine the two because I think one drives the other. My real focus is on looking at technology, new technologies that are emerging in the healthcare industry space or other industries. So, for example? Uh, digital health technologies around personal health devices, medical type devices that are wearables, yeah. uh, implants, those right. kinds of, of type devices that have relevant health data about what's going on in your life real time right. as opposed to a retrospective. And then the aggregation of that data so that we can make more informed decisions even before me, the consumer, presents to a health system. So if I'm a consumer and I'm wearing these kinds of things, which is 
potentially transmitting information about my weight and blood pressure and exercise habits and so forth, that also allows me to interact virtually with a provider. Talk to us a little bit about that and how it's changing the landscape of healthcare. A number of organizations, and more specifically providers, are starting to use telehealth technologies that now has the ability to capture the information I'm talking about, present that in a real-time manner through whatever mechanisms the, the provider has at the time they're actually viewing me as the patient. So I'm not only looking at you and talking with you and looking at the data, I can really make, ha I have a composite set of information about what's going on in my life today, which if you really contrast that to where the industry is today and you talk to a number of providers, if you really talk them to honestly in an encounter with a and I don't like the word patient. Right. I'll use consumer. Right. If, if they're talking to the consumer or the individual, they actually spend less time because they're in, you know, they capture information, write it down or key it in, as opposed to having some kind of real meaningful interactive dialogue about what's going on in my health today. Yeah, that's a good point. So, Jennifer, weigh in on this. In, in terms of the impact of this on overall organizational performance, maybe starting with the patient-to-provider experience. What? Mm -hmm. So the first thing that actually came to mind as you were talking about this is that the there's been a paradigm shift when you think about this across the nation because our our focus on technology has greatly shifted in terms of how we think about and interpret that. So what I mean by that is that if you were to talk to someone even just five years ago and say, hey, you're going to talk to your doctor through the computer, I mean, it's offensive. They literally were like, well, that is that is just not patient-centered. And what we've come to learn is that it's, it's actually more patient-centered because you're not having to take everything away from your daily routine. You don't have to miss work for as long. You don't have to drive across town. There's, there's actually benefits to that. So it's an, obviously that not every encounter can occur without the physician seeing you mm -hmm. and actually touching you. But, but there is a, a difference in terms of just the way we've even, we think about that today from what we did even just a couple of years ago. So I have a question then for both of you, Jennifer and, and John. So we've seen these kinds of technology trends before. So the first one was the acceleration of the mobile phone. I mean, it used to be that only doctors had it. I remember when I had a phone in my car and thought it was really cool, and you had the big <laughs> antenna, the box in the trunk, and all that sort of thing. And, and now everybody, I mean, everybody has a, a phone. And then the second big transaction was uh, web-based uh, consumerism, so Amazon and so forth, where I remember when that was first coming out, I didn't want to have my credit card information out on the web. Like, what? <laughs> and now it's a standard. So given that kind of rapid cycle evolution and adoption, what is your instinct, John, let's start with you, as it relates to how these kinds of trends that you're talking about may actually change the landscape of healthcare? Uh, I, uh, first of all, that's a really that's insightful and I think what has really driven the change in healthcare toward more of a virtual care model or telehealth model has been the mobile phone who doesn't FaceTime today mm -hmm. and as you get more and more comfortable with that you think well if I can interact with you know siblings or family members I can interact with the physician that way and it's interesting there was a survey a number of surveys have been done primarily you know focused on large a large demographic of elderly people asking, how would you prefer to interact with your physician? Would you like to sit in an office right. with 200 other sick people mm -hmm. and wait for four hours and then see the doctor for 15 minutes? 
you know, 90 percent of people, even my age, 60 and over, said I would rather interact through some kind of virtual solution. So I see that's really mm -hmm. what's fueling it. And in, in the U.S., I think it's 1.5, there are 1.5 mobile devices per individual in the U.S. Outside mm -hmm. the U.S., and I just learned this recently in Hong Kong, there are two and a half. Oh, wow mobile devices for so, every adult. So the structure and framework is there to support it. It's really just <clears throat> a matter of the adoption of the process or the approach in healthcare to deliver healthcare differently. Yeah, I, I, the, the, I think the adoption is definitely there. I think the consumers are demanding the challenging we, challenge we have in healthcare is we really haven't built care processes around the delivery of healthcare and that model because it is a cultural change and the organizations we're working with primarily around that is really restructuring how care can and should be delivered using that technology. So I'm going to get right to you, Jennifer, but this represents then essentially a first mover opportunity for health systems, right? And if our listeners are looking at the organizational hierarchy of need, if you're a first mover in delivering new value and you're doing it through a much more efficient, effective organizational platform and you're engaging your colleagues to be able to do that, your horizon for growing your market share and presence is pretty significant. Talk to us about that, Jennifer. No, I think that's spot on. That's what goes into blue ocean thinking and thinking about the fact that there are opportunities that are not as far-fetched as what they once seemed to be. And the people who move first are, I think, going to be more and more people outside of healthcare. And I think good examples of that are looking at things like Amazon and, mm -hmm. and um, other companies that are obviously combining together and being able to say, hey, even if it's just for our employees right now, what does that look like and how do we come together? But even beyond that, where, what are the products and services they're doing to actually support efforts like chronic conditions? Um, there's some really neat technologies out mm -hmm. there to help with medication management and your daily living and and if you know not only not only things like i mean even a simple component like a fitbit or you know a watch that helps track your steps obviously now they're getting much more comprehensive where there's other components with your your blood sugar and your like you mentioned earlier weight and all of those different things which is a great way to have that intermediate communication and to think how do we get ahead of the chronic conditions that really drive a lot of our spend in healthcare. And then the second point I'll, I'll mention, because John, you kind of alluded to this, was that we have some catching up to do. So the thinking is out there, but the question that comes into mind is so a lot of our, our hospitals and practices and providers struggle with it, probably a little bit on a, a, a personal level to say, am I really doing my service if I'm not touching the patient? But the other side of that is, are we paying them for the services and so there's this tug which we were able to kind of talk a little bit about when we were just chatting right before the show and that is what is that tug in terms of the payment model and how do we support innovation like this and technology and healthcare as opposed to just having to kind of have those people on the outskirts who are willing to take risks so how do you expand that opportunity for people with little less risk and more incentive to actually innovate so to focus that question because that's a that's a great question Let's talk about the comparison of this new health system trend with what happened in consumer products, which was the last trend. Okay, so in the last trend, consistent with what you were just saying, Jennifer, it was mom and pop retail stores in a local community. They quickly were pretty much went away. And then it started to hit big box stores like 
Toys R Us and others where the the efficiency of buying through Amazon and so forth actually obviated the need for the hands-on touch and the consolidated inventory of large amounts of toys because actually it's even larger at a web-based thing. So using that as a corollary, talk to us a little bit, John, about the implications for healthcare if organizations don't use first-mover opportunities. Uh, that's, a, that's a really great question, and, and it's interesting. My, my mind first went back to a commercial I saw a few years ago of a guy outside sweeping the sidewalk in front of his store. And the question was, how are you doing from a business perspective? He said, I made more money this year than I made in the last 20 years together, yet there's no one in his store. And it was because everything was being acquired or purchased through the web. I really think organizations that aggressively adopt these kinds of new strategies that really focus on consumerism and empowering the consumer as part of the healthcare process will thrive significantly. I've got a number of clients that are really using this as a core tenant around building their, their they'll call it patient engagement model. I call it individual healthy model. Right. But really using that. And the algorithm I've come up with looked at the number of organizations in the country today and those organizations' ability to move quickly, have the, the funding to move quickly, and aggressively adopt these new technology because we know they're coming and we know the impact they're going to have on healthcare. If you look at the landscape, roughly 5,800 health systems today, based on putting together a, a model, building some algorithms, you're really looking at fewer than a, than a thousand institutions. So to your point earlier, those organizations that aren't aggressively looking at this and, and testing and, and, and designing new processes around this technology, I think will fail. So I, I have a really specific question for you, Jennifer. So what are the impediments that existing health systems have to get there? And then the second part of that question is, what do they have to do to overcome those impediments? Mm, that's a really good question. I think there are several components. One, I think, and I, <laughs> I think we often underestimate how significant this one is, and that's just culture, and that people become very comfortable in what's known. And sometimes the unknown is very scary for people. So it's just easier to do what you've always done and sometimes we don't know what we don't know, right? So we don't know how the market will react. And it's very hard to put yourself out. It's like dating, right? It's hard to put yourself out there if you're fearing rejection. It's the same concept when you're actually in the market and it's a business model, whether you're a small business or a large business. Now, obviously, there are different levels of risks depending on the size of the organization. So I'd say for even, for example, rural health areas where their community hospitals are much smaller and have much lower margins perhaps and I, and there are some very successful areas um, as well but it's a higher risk right so culture is one piece two is that we kind of alluded to in terms of incentivized through reimbursement is a struggle the one thing i would say about that piece would be what's the cost of not doing this Right, and so what is your short-term cost versus potentially the long-term cost of either investing or not investing in future state components to that? Uh, and three, again, it's just operations. So sometimes we come in, and this is where execution matters. So you might have a really great strategy, but if you can't connect the dots to get there, your great strategy will, will fail. And that, of course, has a very detrimental impact on the organization because it impacts culture where they say, we've tried that before, it just didn't work, or some other impact in terms of just feeling like they ha weren't able to be successful. And sometimes there's real Im implications to that where 
it means cuts in other areas because something didn't work. So those so, are things that come to mind So for me. let's put it, for the listeners, let's put it on a timeline because you mm -hmm. kind of teed that up. Let's talk about what they might have to think about doing now mm -hmm. versus what the future might be if they don't change. So I'll just get the conversation going and you guys jump in. So on the now, many organizations are struggling with just capacity of handling what they're currently doing. And therefore, because they're under stress, they can't innovate, nor do they have the margins to be able to invest in those innovations because they have a lot of excess days and things like that in their length of stay, and that's impacting negatively their bottom line. So it would seem that at least now, <clears throat> what they need to be able to do is maximize efficiency and operational margin. Now, if I fast forward ahead, and I'm just gonna pass this off to you guys, in the future, Amazon and other companies are not going to ask for permission to come in and compete. So it's foreseeable that just like you dial in to buy sneakers and, and shirts, you could dial in and have a menu of high-end medical procedures. Uh, you can fly to Singapore for a total hip replacement, stay in a five-star hotel at 25% of the cost, as an example. And they're not going to ask for your permission, and the consumer will have that channel option, and you just never saw them. So your competitor just went from being the next hospital in your region to anybody in the world that can do it at a different pace because that framework is already there. Is that correct, John? Yeah, absolutely. It is, it is absolutely there. I, th I think your example of medical tourism is spot on. It's because a, a number of individuals for very costly procedures have that option today with three things resulting. One, a lot less costly. Secondly, a lot, you know, because it's demonstrated high quality care, in some cases, or most cases, higher level of care. Mm. And thirdly, it's satisfaction, patient or customer satisfaction. So from a technology standpoint, I mean, you're the expert there. What do organizations need to be thinking about as kind of the framework to bridge this gap between now and the future? Like, what should they be thinking about and investing in and then as soon as you're done jennifer let's talk about what does that mean operationally like how do they accommodate the technology into the operation right that's a great question what i typically do is advise our clients to obviously start small uh, what i suggest is that you establish an innovation organization or an innovation center you bring these new technologies in and and my suggestion is you don't acquire them you partner with the organizations because as these technologies are being developed, those developing organizations are looking for partners to build this out and prove it, that it works. So they're looking for a proof of concept. So, so let me see if I, just for listeners, let me see if I'm summarizing this right. So it's kind of like an organization establishes a renaissance center, a, an innovation center, call it what you want. And they're doing it through collaborative or innovative partnerships with the vendors that are producing this technology. Mm -hmm both to reduce cost as well as to recognize that the technology is changing so rapidly that if you bought it, it's, it's aged almost. Okay, mm -hmm. is it, so is that correct? That's correct, and I'll give you a specific example. As mentioned in the introduction, I was a CIO at, at a very large organization in Atlanta, and we were very innovative, and we were looking at a problem where we had multiple facilities, and yet physical copies of medical records that had to be shipped around wherever the patient was presenting. So we looked at the problem and said, look, we think we can build something that solves this, not us, because we're not builders and we're not developers, but why don't we find a partner that can work with us in building out? Long story short, we created the first 
multiple health system clinical repository in the country here in Atlanta for less than $25,000. Wow. Through the being very creative in building out the innovation center, which we didn't call it an innovation center then because that was a relatively new term, but you know, just kind of a design center where we brought organizations in and developed the product. And the important thing that really helped though is the individuals that were going to be using that technology were part of the design process, which led to early adoption. Got it, so human-centered design, right, connecting the user and the provider. Um, so before we switch to the operational side of this, a lot of organizations will say, well, we have an EHR, like we have a, so isn't that enough? I, I love that because in a lot of my speeches, the first question I ask when there are CIOs in the room is how many of you have electronic medical records? And of course, you know, under meaningful use, every, almost everybody raises their hand. I say, great, congratulations, you're now at step zero. <laughs> what you now have is a set of information that's codified and, did, and discrete data so that I can start to do analysis of that data and do more predictive wellness maintenance things than we've done in the past. EMR is a retrospective view of what has happened to me in the past. I can take that data, merge that with other data, and do much more in, in, in figuring out what might be going on in my life today from a health perspective in, as Jennifer mentioned earlier, try to manage chronic care. What a great tool to be able to say, hey, you know, John's predisposed toward all these things. His blood pressure's going up, his weight's going up, his glucose is going up. I mean, it could be a, you know, a diabetic prospect. Mm -hmm. If I can engage and manage that earlier, I may avoid chronic conditions. So this is something quite different then than just the EHR. This is innovation. So yeah. operational implications, talk to us about that. Yeah, so I think the biggest thing we're missing when we think about the operational component is ease of access and ease of use. So for example, hospitals, large systems spend a couple hundred million dollars on new implementation of electronic medical records. Brings them a lot of value in terms of supporting documentation. And, but access. along with, yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. But along with that comes significant number of administrative tasks that's required by physicians and nurses and care managers and, and uh, non-clinical staff and every single aspect of care and it's an interesting concept to think about the reason technology came around in the first place was to make our lives easier and so there's always this balance that we have to think about and this is relevant for innovation this is relevant for technology it's relevant for a small business there's if you think about an axis um, you've got your x and y axis pick your choice on which one goes where but you have to balance risk and you have to balance the value you're bringing. So how much value are you getting from, or could you get from this technology or this innovation, whatever it is, and what's the potential risk and cost there in terms of risk of failure, risk of actual um, success as well, and thinking about timing of those things, how long will this take? And so I think you brought up a really good point, John, around start small. Not everything has to entail boiling the ocean. And a lot of organizations, when you think about operational changes that come in, they start and they pilot, they do a great job. They pilot maybe in a, one department, one unit. And then all of a sudden they say, oh, it worked. And then they spread it out house wide. And all of a sudden it blows up because they didn't think about it 
comprehensively across the board. They thought about it in one small area. And so it's just like any good research study. You have to make sure it's generalizable before you actually go and start to implement it. Same concept. You can't, it's anything like change management. You have to be very careful because there's an implication of innovation where people are, have different senses of readiness for adoption and being able to manage that appropriately and communicate along with the, again, the risks and the value that come into play there. So we'll need to wrap up here soon in terms of this part of our conversation. And next week, we're going to talk more about performance excellence in the age of consumerism. But there are three points from this, from our collective conversation, that seem to stand out. And then I, w I would like you guys to respond to that. So the first is, in the United States right now, for every dollar spent, 30% of that is administrative. And if you're dealing with competition across the world, your competitors don't have that. So fundamentally, that's a potential problem. Secondly, this whole notion of an innovation center and how to create the transition, start small like you talked about, pilot it, it seems to be a topic that we'll want to carry on in the deep uh, dive. And then essentially the other is how do you measure success? How do you know you're winning, right? What are you using as essentially your your roadmap or guide to say that worked, this didn't, and how do you then kind of adjust as you go? So a couple of thoughts. One is that we know in healthcare that different studies show that anywhere from 30 to 50 percent of our cost is actual waste, and yet it's almost 18 percent of our GDP. So if you think about it, it's about I think it's like 17 and a half percent now. So it literally means that almost 18 cents on every dollar you spend, no matter what you're spending it on, is going to healthcare. Now it's really reassuring to know that about half of that is waste, right? That's not quite as exciting when you think about that. But the other side of that is other countries actually spend a lot of money because mm -hmm. you alluded to to that piece. They just spend it differently and they coordinate it differently. And it's interesting when you actually start to study the different approaches. And I know, John, you've done a lot of this as well um, in terms of how they they navigate regulatory standards, how they navigate their social support and chronic conditions and other factors that come into play when you think about general health. And so those are components when you look at administrative cost, that's a piece of it. But again, what's the cost of not keeping people out of the hospital, right? What's the cost of not having a healthy society? What's the cost on the economy in terms of people not being able to go to work? I mean, I know it sounds kind of high pie in the sky, but it actually has a very broad impact when you think about the overall public health that comes into play with, with all of that. And so the last thing I just wanted to mention around that is there's a book because we like to bring up books. So this is for you, Duffy. This is a book for you. Um, it's called If Disney Ran Your Hospital. And there's a couple of components in there that I think are a little different than my, my personal opinion. However, the concept behind it is really good. And so when you go in and talk to nurses and other people in the hospital, they say, well, this is not Disney World, and that's not why patients are here. And they're almost offended. But on the flip side of that, if you think about medical tourism and other factors, why you know patients don't want to be here, so why in the world not make it as good of an instance and in a circumstance as possible, right? right? That doesn't mean, yes, you, they do have to leave at some point, but it's a, it's a bad experience when people go into the hospital. Nobody wants to be there. They're missing work. They obviously don't feel good. They're away from family. I mean, it's a hard time. So right. how do we make things that patient, how do we make care truly patient-centered, right. right? And that means actually keeping them out of the hospital and when they're in the hospital, making it as good as possible. 
great point. So last word on this, John, and then we'll <clears throat> break and hopefully you can join us for the next week's show. So, yeah, based on all this stuff that we talked about, how would you wrap it up for the audience today? I, I think the first thing I would point out, and, and, and Jennifer's right, we're about 18 percent, 17 and a half to 18 percent of healthcare costs as part of our, our, our GDP. I would actually argue that it's a lot larger than mm-hmm. that because when you look at the impact of an individual that has a prolonged illness away from work and that employer has mm-hmm. to bring somebody in to supplement Mm-hmm. that individual's job you you should really be function that should be factored those are in associated as, costs they're associated costs and they're significant five five to ten percent more wow so when you really think about it like that we really need to get our arms around how we do a better job of keeping an individual healthy and at work that's the first thing i think the second thing is i agree with the 30 percent to 50 percent and a lot of it is waste what I really see starting to happen in the industry is you're starting to see that line between payer and mm-hmm. provider come together, yeah. right. where more providers are becoming payers. Right. And once that happens, the real focus will be on not so much the administrative cost, but let's have the right data to treat the right patient at the right place. At the right at price. At the appropriate site, at the right cost. Yeah. Thank you so much for that. I know at the end of every show, Duffy always says what a fascinating topic, and as I sat here and listened to the show, I have to echo what she says. It really is fascinating, interesting with the technology, and I'm looking forward to next week's show uh, and the deep dive as we get more into it and talk some performance excellence. And, and I may actually chime in with a few questions of my own as a consumer slash uh, patient. But, uh, John, before we wrap up here, please share the website for the HCI Group for those that would like to find out more about your company. Sure. You can look up www.thehcigroup.com. Uh, you can find a lot of information, white papers as well on this topic. Uh, I think whether you're a client or not, there's a wealth of information about where the healthcare industry is going and some of the thought leader organizations and how they're addressing. Great, John. Well, thank you very much. I want to thank everyone else for joining us here on Leader Dialogue, brought to you by Soar Vision Group and the Baldridge Foundation. Remember, you can listen to this show, a new live show, every Friday at 1 o'clock Eastern Time by visiting businessradiox.com, select the Gwinnett Studio, and then select Leader Dialogue. Click on Listen Live, and that's where you'll, we, you'll find us every Friday at 1 o'clock. But if you can't join us, then no worries. You can listen to any of the shows anytime, 24-7, by visiting businessradiox.com. Again, select the Gwinnett Studio and click on Leader Dialogue. Or, better yet, you can visit leaderdialogue.com slash podcast. On behalf of Ben Sawyer and Jennifer Strahan with Soar Vision Group and our producer Trey, I'm Mike Salmon in for Duffy Dixon this week, and we'll see you next time on Leader Dialogue right here on Business Radio X.